Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here. I'm glad that whoever's watching on the live stream now, that you're here with us too. Uh, let's run through a couple of quick announcements, and then we'll pray and we'll get going. Uh, if you would check out the announcement, everything's on for today as far as youth confirmation, adult Bible study, uh, uh, adult confirmation tonight. Everything's on for this week, uh, many, uh, uh, Tuesday morning, men's Bible study, Saturday morning, women's Bible study. Uh, Wednesday night, Advent, uh, no, not Advent, Lent services at 7. What we're going to be doing is working through the Old Testament readings for each week. So we're going to be reading on Wednesday night the Genesis 22 story of the sacrifice of Isaac slash testing of Abraham. That's what we'll be doing each week. So join us for that. Uh, Tuesday evening youth group, uh, remember that at 6 o'clock, uh, Stacy is going to be meeting with any parents or adults who want to go on the mission trip uh, this summer up to Minnesota. So uh, join us for that and um, get some info. It's not a commitment, but get some info from her. One quick commercial. I feel real bad about this, but I'm going to do this because uh, Chuck Rathert wants me to do this. Uh, so Chuck and I have been doing a, a podcast, and we're about 10 episodes in, and we're just talking about the, basically the, the, the gist of the podcast is Christianity for people who are on the outside, but they've got questions about it, or Christians who are Christians, but they're not really sure why they're Christians, or they've got questions about their beliefs. And we've talked about a whole different raft of issues and, and topics and uh, Bible texts and stuff like that. We're about maybe eight or nine episodes in now, but I haven't really talked about it in here because it always feels sort of like self-promotional to say this, but uh, Larry, who does the engineering for it, and I've not looked at the metrics, but he says that a lot of people, there's a lot of people, I don't know if they like it or not, but there's people all over the world who have been listening to it. That sounds really self-promotional. I apologize. But if you could do me a favor, I, th if, I think it would be helpful, if, not that I do a great job in there or anything, but it would be helpful if we could, if you guys would listen to it and then let me know what you think, or especially if you would listen to it and then rate and review it. That would help other people hear it as well. If you are the kind of person who has a phone where you know where your podcast app is at, you can find it on your podcast app in uh, Android or Apple phones. You can find it on Amazon Audible or Spotify or iHeartRadio. If you're not the kind of person who does that, you can just go to, get on your computer and go to Google or Bing and type in Craving Answers, Craving God, and it's the first thing that pops up. If you're not the kind of person who can use a computer to find stuff online, then I have no help for you. I could come and just like tell you what we talked about, but that's that's all I can do. But if you could, do, if you could listen to that and, and be super honest with me about what you think, but don't be honest in the reviews if you don't like it. There, you can lie. Uh, but I, I would like to know what you think. And also, we are having a lot of fun doing it. And if we can expand the footprint of that a little bit, it would be a great thing. Anyway, self-promotion over for at least a few minutes. All right, uh, let's uh, uh, stand and let's pray, and then we will continue in worship. So let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for loving us and for being so good to us. And uh, we're, we come before you as a people who are uh, constantly tempted and constantly prone to giving in to temptation. And we need your presence. We need your power and your help. We need your mercy and we need your grace to be with us uh, throughout our lives. And so we're asking you this morning as, as we meet with you in praise and worship and word and sacrament, that you would make yourself real to us, that we would experience you, not necessarily emotionally or intellectually, but we would experience you in such a way that we are strengthened for the mission that you've put us on in your name. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Let's continue in worship in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty... I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, 
by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray, God Almighty, to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant you pardon, forgiveness, and remission of all your sins. Amen. You may be seated. psalmist from Psalm 91, and um, 
The gospel reading for today in the sermon text is going to be focused on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And so if, if, you, if you're familiar with that story from Matthew and Luke's version, you'll recognize a, a lot of the language here from Psalm 91. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Old Testament reading is from Genesis 22. This is what we're going to be looking at on uh, Wednesday evening. It's the sacrifice of Isaac, or more properly, the testing of Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading, also about testing and temptation, is from James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 1. This is a three-for-one here. Three stories uh, in one. In those days, baptism of Jesus, temptation of Jesus, uh, initial announcement of kingdom mission. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the gospel of the Lord. So we've actually talked about two of these stories in here. I preached on the baptism of Jesus back uh, in January. A couple weeks after that, uh, John uh, Lang was here with us, and he preached on this text, Mark 1, 14 and 15, the initial kingdom announcement. So today we're going to focus on that center part, the, the meat of that sandwich there, the temptation of Jesus. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the same story. Uh, John doesn't have... John doesn't have actually a narrative description of the baptism of Jesus, just John the Baptist describing it. The Gospel of John also doesn't talk about the temptation of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the story in the same arrangement. Jesus gets baptized. Right after that, he's sent out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. And then right after the wilderness temptation, he announces the kingdom. In Matthew and in Mark, it's a simple, the kingdom of heaven is it here, repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke, it's a longer story. He preaches this sermon in the synagogue at Nazareth where he talks about Isaiah 61 and drops it on them that that's actually him. But one thing you'll notice about those Matthew and Luke's version of this, that Mark is completely different, is that Matthew and Luke have these long extended versions of these stories. Like the story of Jesus' bathroom and bathroom, baptism. That's a weird Freudian slip. I don't know what that was. 
all is really long, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten verses. The story of Jesus' temptation in Matthew is like a dozen verses, and there's like this huge, long dialogue. And then you get to Mark. Baptism gets two verses. Temptation gets two verses. And then the kingdom announcement, of course, just gets a couple verses. Part of us, like, wants more details. You know, fine, go to Matthew or Luke. Mark is doing something different. And what Mark is doing is by compacting these stories and then putting them right next to each other real fast, is he's making the point that these stories are all organically related. It's the same story. The temptation with Matthew and Luke and John is to read these stories. You know, we can read the story of Jesus' baptism from John or from Matthew and then go away and come back a couple weeks and then read about the temptation and just assume that those two things aren't connected. With Mark's version, it's so rapid fire that you, you have to see that there's a connection here. Now, what is the connection? Let's talk about that today. And specifically, let's talk for a few minutes about temptation and what Jesus' temptation here can tell us about how you and I face temptation. And there's four things that I want to tell you about that the text points out here. And the first is that temptation is missional. The temptation that you and I experience is actually missional. Uh, what I mean by that is this. Um, God's put us on a mission. Being tempted is a part of that mission. Right? Here's how it works. Um, if you want more, I'm, I'm going to give me 30 seconds here to rehash a sermon that I preached on the baptism of Jesus back a month ago. If you want more details, you can find that, that on, you, you know, you can find that on the, our, our church's uh, podcast or you can go on the website and listen to that sermon where I developed it a little bit more. But let me just real quick make this point and then we'll come back to this text. Jesus' baptism, I argued a month ago, was a going back to creation to fix what went wrong there, right? Creation, Genesis chapter one, God creates this world and initially it's formless and it's void and it's covered with water, it's chaotic. And God uses three tools to bring order and meaning and purpose to that creation. He uses his spirit, the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis one, two. He uses his word. The word of God speaks light into darkness you know, speaks dry land into the deep, speaks birds into the air, etc. And then three, his image. God puts Adam and Eve and says, you two are going to look like me. You are here to be my image bearers. In other words, you're to worship me, you're to love each other, and you're to take care of this, this beautiful new world that I've created, representing me. You're to be my image bearers. You're supposed to look like me here. The first two are good to go. God's Holy Spirit never fails. God's word never fails. His image bears, though, in Genesis chapter 3, badly fail. How does he fix it? Go forward to Jesus' baptism. This is, all, this is all rehashed from a month ago. Jesus brings new creation to the creation that Adam and Eve sullied. How does he do it? How does God do it? He does it three ways. His spirit, the spirit of God hovering over Jesus in the form of a dove. He does it with his word. The word of God announcing out loud over his son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he does it finally with the true image. His true image, the true representative of God, who also happens to be scandalously now the true representative of humans. He's the one true man. He is the one true image bearer. He is the one, he's the one that Adam and Eve were supposed to be, but they couldn't be because they fell. This is how God brings new creation. Okay. What happens to Adam and Eve after their creation? Created, but forget this before they fell. Their creation, they're immediately tempted by the enemy. And the enemy tempts them with this desire to be like God. Don't you want to be like God? Don't you wish that you had the power that God had? The way he worms that desire, the way he tempts them with that desire to be like God is with food, with the desires that our body have, good desires for good stuff, this desire for food. Isn't that food beautiful? Isn't it tasty? Wouldn't you like to have that? If you were like God, you could have that and nobody could tell you not to have it. That's the temptation that they underwent. The temptation was designed, that, that was actually, they were called to be on a mission, right? To love God, to, to, Genesis 1, 28 and following. To steward the creation, to name the animals, to watch out for the animals, to watch out for the environment, to care and love for each other, to be in constant worship with God. That was the mission they were called to be on. But because they fell, they gave in to that temptation to be like God. They screwed themselves up and they screwed everything else up, including me and you, including what's outside those doors right there, what's inside those doors right, th right here. Everything gets screwed up. When new creation happens, jump forward to the gospel story. New creation, Jesus is baptized. 
order out of chaos, righteousness out of unrighteousness, life out of death. He, is done, he, he does that because he is also on a mission. It's the exact same mission that Adam and Eve were on. To recreate a world where pure and true worship of God would happen, where pure and true love and caring for our neighbors would happen, and where the environment would be taken care of by humans perfectly forever. That's the mission that he was on. Part of that mission is to go through what Adam and Eve went through. They had the garden, though. What does he have? Look, look here real quick with me at verse um, 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. Like, two-verse description of his temptation. Almost all details stripped away from it compared to Matthew and Luke, except for what's up with the wild animals. Well, here, here's, here's the point. When Adam and Eve underwent their temptation, they were in the perfect environment for obedience. They had this intimate relationship with God. They had each other to support them. They were basically living in luxury. They had everything that they could need. It was the perfect environment to say no to the temptation. Jesus is living in the exact opposite environment. Jesus is living in an environment that's been destroyed by what Adam and Eve did. Jesus isn't in a beautiful garden. Jesus is in the desert. Jesus isn't there with nature that's on his side. Nature supporting him and working with him like Adam and Eve had. Jesus didn't have animals on his side. Jesus was with the wild animals. Jesus didn't have a partner to support him. Jesus is there by himself. Jesus didn't have all the food that he could eat. He didn't have a full stomach. He didn't have water to drink. He had no food. He had, and he had every excuse to cave in to the temptation, which, by the way, was the exact same temptation that Adam and Eve had. Don't you want to be like God? And we don't know this from the Mark version, but from Matthew and Luke, we know that Satan said to him, look, I could make you God. I am God. You want all the power in the kingdoms? I can give that to you. You just got to ask me for it. You want to be like me? You want to be like God? He does it with food. You know, you're really hungry. You're probably not thinking straight. If you could think straight, you'd make better decisions about what's going to happen next. Why don't you have a little something to eat? Satan, same temptation. It's the primal temptation. Same temptation you and I face every day. The temptation to be like God. The temptation to satisfy our own physical desires at the expense of obedience to God. Now, what's the point? The point is this. Jesus is on mission. The mission of the kingdom. This is a part of it. He's going to go through it. Make another point here in a second, which is kind of related to this. Uh, well, I'll get to that in just a minute. This is a part of who Jesus is. If Jesus is going to succeed in his mission to bring about new creation, he's going to have to fight the guy who brought in the brokenness of the old creation. That's what he's going to have to do. It's a part of his mission. So, so what can we learn from this? Here's what we can learn. Is that a huge part of what Adam and Eve were called to be about was to resist the enemy. A huge part of loving God only and taking care of each other instead of themselves in their own empty stomachs and taking care of the environment was to resist the temptations to not worship God, to not care for each other, and to not take care of the environment. They don't do it, and what happens? Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with each other, blame shifting, and broken relationship with the environment. Pain in childbirth, pain in, pain in work, um, not being fulfilled in work, working real hard and things not coming together for you. All this stuff happens. They failed in their mission, but Jesus is on mission. So larger point, temptation is missional. What Jesus is doing here is what he's supposed to be doing here. What Adam and Eve, what, what happened to them in the garden was what, spoke, it was what was supposed to happen. It was not some mistake. It was not some fault in their own character that they were tempted by Satan. Any more than it was a fault in Jesus' character that he was tempted by Satan. Your temptation is missional. It's not an aberration. It's not opposed to who, what your mission is. It is a part of what your mission is. So, uh, here, let me give you an example. When I was in college, I stayed around, the school that I went to, I stayed around for two of the summers to be an associate, uh, associate, an assistant basketball coach at their summer basketball camps for high school teams. That was, all, that was fun, but the, week, the, the very first week of the summer, we didn't get high school teams. Every summer, you would get like elementary school. It was like community like service. Like you had to coach these elementary school kids, many of whom like basketball and many of whom had no interest in basketball at all, but their parents were like, hey, basketball would be good for you. Go learn it. So what you would do is you would try and like uh, separate out the, the people who knew what was going on from the kids who were just learning. And one time I was working with a group of kids who were just learning, you know, and you're just basically talking about basics. You don't even remember what the basics are. 
you know, but you're like, well, if you throw the ball up through that little metal ring up there, you get points. And I remember one time uh, these kids were playing and this one kid was super frustrated. He was getting really frustrated and he came over and said to me and the other assistant was working with me, he's like, I'm trying to score, but this kid keeps trying to steal the ball from me. And we had to tell him, like, that's actually a part of it, right? Like a part of scoring is don't let the other team have the ball. He was like, I can't score because they're trying to steal the ball from me. And we're like, no, that's a part of the game. You have to try to score while they're stealing the ball from you. In fact, part of having a good offense is not letting them have the ball. Like, I'm like that. Like, that's my Christian life, right? I'm like, I, I, I want to forgive people who've hurt me. But I'm like, I can't. I can't forgive people because I just remember all the past things that they've done to me. Like, I want to be sexually pure, but I'm like, it's super hard to be sexually pure because I just face all the sexual temptation. Like, we, we want to be generous with our money. But it's so hard to be generous with our money because, like, as soon as you start being generous with your money, there's, like, all this temptation to think about, like, well, what I could be spending this money on, or they probably don't deserve it, or they're just going to waste it. Or there's other things I should be giving it to. I'll just wait and check around for a little bit before I do that. There's all these temptations in the way. What we're like is like, I want to I be on mission, but these temptations are getting in the way. And what I want to say is like, no. One of the things this story means is that one of, the, one of the reasons why Mark is putting this baptism, temptation, mission, it's all the same thing going on together, is that when you're tempted, it's because you're on mission. The temptation is the mission. Part of your mission is to say no to the temptation. The temptation is not there to block you from your mission. The temptation is there to for you to block, to be on mission. So when we say no to sexual desire, that's actually being on mission. It's like, I just can't be a good Christian because I just struggle with sin. No, being, good, being a good Christian is struggling with sin. Like struggling with sin is a part of being on mission. Does this make sense? Okay, this is what's going on. We need to learn not to think of temptation as something that's a barrier to our Christianity, but Fighting temptation is a part of our Christianity. It's who we are. Don't be put off by it. Here's another way to say it. Don't think that something is wrong because you're being tempted. Do you know when you're tempted? Do you know when you are most tempted not to forgive? Is when you're trying to forgive somebody. Do you, do you know the best way to not have sexual uh, desires? To not, to, to not, do you know the best way to not battle with sexual lust? Just to give in to it. If you are struggling with a temptation it means that you are on mission and the enemy is pushing back against you. You run the box and one defense on the team's best, other team's best player. Look, if Jesus is not a threat to Satan, there's no reason for Satan to invest 40 days of his extremely valuable time to try and mess with Jesus in the wilderness. You know why he's doing that? You know why Jesus is getting tempted? Because Jesus is about to win. You know why you're getting tempted? Because the Holy Spirit is working in you to fight that temptation. The temptation is not a sign that things are going wrong. It's a sign that you are actually on Jesus' mission. That's the first thing. That's the longest point, by the way, too, is that temptation is missional. Second thing is that temptation is perpetual. It will never stop. You will always be tempted. Interesting feature here about the Mark story. Let me read this to you. It's just two verses. Tell me, I'm going to read this. Tell me if you think there's anything weird about this story compared to the Matthew and Luke versions, besides the fact that it's much shorter. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. All right. Anything weird about that? Did anybody notice anything odd? In this version, Jesus doesn't win. In Matthew and Luke, it's very clear. Like Satan's coming at him with these temptations. And Jesus has got these one-liners. And finally Satan's like, okay, I'm out. And he walks away. It doesn't happen here. It just says Jesus was being tempted. And then next story is Jesus in Galilee preaching. What's that about? It's not that Mark doesn't know that Jesus won, but it's that Mark wants to make a point. It's, 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 not, it's not an opposite point to Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke want to emphasize that Satan is defeated by Jesus. That when Satan comes at Jesus, Jesus wins, no questions asked. Mark, he's not disagreeing with that point, but he, is made, he wants to make this point here. This is not a one-off event. Look, if you read Matthew and Luke by itself, it's like, Jesus wins, yes, there's victory. And Mark is saying, I want to hold on to that for just a little bit. Let, 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 let's let that victory sit to the side for a minute. This is not a one-off event where Jesus like hits the one-liners and then he's done, he's got victory. Because for the rest of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to be battling Satan. 
couple sections over from this is the, is the text we read two weeks ago about Jesus walking into the synagogue in, um, synagogue in Capernaum and casting out the man with the demon. And people were like, whoa, this guy, has, this guy has authority over Satan and over demons. Mark chapter 3, the religious right are going to say to Jesus, you're only casting out demons because you have, Satan's given you that power. And Jesus is like, well, first of all, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would the coach take his best players out, out of the game? Why would Satan take demons out of people? But second of all, like, I cast out demons because I own Satan. There's going to be an ongoing battle with Satan and the, and the world all the way through. And what Mark is trying to say here is that this is not, it, it doesn't end here. Yes, Jesus wins. But, but don't feel like, don't, fe- don't hope in some this life end to your temptation. Don't put your hopes in that because it doesn't exist. There's two, two bad ways that we can think about temptation as Christians. One is the Lutheran way. And I'm going to s- explain that briefly then move on. The second is the way that's described, that, that, that we can uh, suss out of this text. The Lutheran way is, you know, so they're, they're famous, uh, well, famous, you know, very, very small circle famous. There's a guy who has a regular uh, show on KFUO who says frequently, you should never preach or teach the third use of the gospel. Do you guys remember from your confirmation days with the third, third use of the law? Do you guys remember from your confirmation days what the third use of the law is? It's the, it's the use that, so the second use is the, the, the favorite Lutheran one, you know. The law shows us that we're sinful and drives us to Jesus. It's beautiful. Third use is also good, and it's in the Bible. Once you are a Christian, the law is a picture of the character of God that we are called by the power of the Holy Spirit to imitate. And this guy says, you can't, you can't do that because people will be legalistic. If you start saying you should obey God's law, people will, people will drift irresistibly into trying to live their life by good works. I, I understand his point. I know what he's saying. I'm aware of the danger, but I, I really, really do disagree with him. You know, what, what's he saying? He's saying, temptation, you can't beat it. All you can do is ask for forgiveness. You're going you're gonna to fail, you're going to fail, you're going to fail, and you just need to ask for forgiveness. There is some truth in that, but in my mind, it's actually defeatist. It, it doesn't give the Holy Spirit credit for, the, for, for, for his power to apply the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ to our lives in such a way that we can actually resist temptation. More on that in point three, which I'm just going to completely disagree with what I just said. Here's the, here's the second way, the, 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 the danger here in the text that, that we can sort of pull out of the text here. I grew up in a Baptist. I grew up a Baptist. I grew up in sort of revivalist circles, which drew, drew a lot from a Methodist, 1800s Methodism, and what's called the Keswick theology, don't write that down, it's not important, uh, which basically said this, Christians are Christians, you got a lot of people who are Christians, but then in the Christian life, there's the second level you can get to, where there'll be nothing between your soul and the Savior, where you can surrender all, where you can have no gap between you and God. The Methodist John Wesley talked about it as like, even if it's temporary, you can achieve a complete sanctification, where you are free from sin, even momentarily in this life. I think one of the things that we can learn from this text here is that that's just not possible. That's not real. You will never achieve. Temptation is perpetual. You will always fight it. And again, like, don't be discouraged by it. It's a sign that you're on mission. If you're tempted, it's a sign that the Holy Spirit is saying, don't do that. Do do this. Lean on that. Lean on that, okay? Look, it's like working out or saving money. Being a Christian is like working out or saving money. If you're not hurting it a little bit, nothing's happening. You know, if, you, if, if you're just like walking through your life and nothing's going on, you don't feel any sort of temptation, then you're not working out. You're not really saving money. No pain, no gain. Now, I'm going to emphasize here in a minute that I'm going to undermine that. But there is something to that. Your temptation, like when your gut is burning, when you're on that seventh mile, that's okay, so some of you it's a lot more than that, but for me, when you're on that second mile and your gut is burning, that's actually a sign that good things are happening, okay? When you're being tempted by sin, don't be freaked out. Don't be like, I need to get to a place where I run and I can just run for forever and I never feel, don't, don't, that, that's not gonna happen. Hang in there and, I'll, and I'll, sh- I'll give you some tools for that in our fourth point. That's the second point. Uh, temptation is missional, temptation is perpetual. Third point, temptation is impossible. It's impossible. Let me show, go back to verse 13 here. And when, uh, um, and he was in the Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Why does it say 40 days? That's another detail that Mark needs to put in here. Well, f- first of all, because 
I mean, the other gospel writers agree that he was there for 40 days. That's actually the amount of days that he was there. But 40, that's a good biblical number for going through suffering. Especially, you think about the 40 years. If you're, if you're a Jew of Jesus' day, you think about the 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very similar story to this, right? So Adam and Eve fell. Adam and Eve fell and created this, what we, the problems that we have now, right? How, what's God's initial step to fix that? He calls Israel. He calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you, we, we read this in Genesis 22, I'm going to make you a great nation and you're going to bring blessing to the world. How does he bring that about? Baptism, right? Three, same three things in our text. There's a baptism. The Red Sea is their baptism. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul actually calls Israel crossing the Red Sea their baptism into Moses. Temptation, they go into the wilderness to be, and they have you know, 40 years of temptation. And then, we'll get back to that in a second. And then, mission. They are called in Exodus 19, you are my people, you are going to be my kingdom of priests. You're going to be kings, all of you are going to be kings and queens, you're going to rule over my creation. As priests, you're going to represent me. That's their mission. Exact same mission that you and I have. Exact same mission that Adam and Eve had, to be the kingdom of priests. Exact same mission that Jesus has. He is the king priest. But they fail. They rebel, against, they, they rebel against God in the wilderness. You know why? You know why they failed? They failed? Because that's what people do. We are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We, every time we go through the baptism, temptation, mission phase, every time we're in that, you're going to fail in the middle part. You're going to let God down. If you look at any character in the Bible outside of Jesus, who is more drawn out. I mean, there's some people that you just get their like name, right? But if you get a character that's kind of well-drawn, you will always, whether it's Abraham or Moses or David or Peter, whatever, fill in the blank, you will always find them failing, abandoning their mission, trying to be God instead of God, trying to give themselves bread in the wilderness, trying to give themselves fruit off the forbidden tree, trying to give themselves physical pleasure at the expense of obedience to God. Every time, every time, until this guy here, until this guy here, which let's move to the, uh, it's impossible. That's what I'm saying. You are going to fail, which brings us to the uh, a fourth point, which in good Lutheran fashion, I'm going to say fighting temptation is possible. I know the third point was that it was impossible, but now let me tell you how it's possible. All right, so, so um, battling, temp- your, your temptations are missional. Uh, um, um, uh, they're perpetual. They're impossible, but they're possible. How? Well, because this guy, because Jesus beats Satan. That's all you need. That's what you need. So a couple years ago, um, the Dodgers were playing the Pirates in Pittsburgh, and Rich Hill, who I think, he, does he still, Angel, does he still pitch for the Dodgers? That's a joke. Angel has no clue who Rich Hill is. Uh, he was pitching for the Dodgers, and uh, he was throwing a no-hitter. Does anybody remember this game? You have to be a baseball nerd to remember this. He was throwing a no-hitter. He had a no-hitter through nine innings. He threw a complete game no-hitter. The problem was the Dodgers hadn't scored. It was 0-0. Zero zero. And so... Uh, he had thrown this beautiful game. Like every pirate batter had got up and completely failed. In the bottom of the 10th, Josh Harrison for the Pirates came up and hit a walk-off home run, ended the no-hitter. They only had one hit, the very last hit of the game, and they won the game. Now, so think about if you're, like, you, you say that you're the second baseman or the, whatever, third baseman for the Pirates. I think Josh Harrison was the second baseman. You're playing this whole game. It's complete failure. Like, you're hopeless. You haven't got a single hit. And you've not done your job. How do you win? There's one guy who gets a hit. You know what's cool? This is not cool, by the way. It's just coincidence, I believe. Uh, I I just realized this when I was preaching in 745 service, that his name is Josh Harrison. That's who hit the home run, which is actually Jesus's name in Hebrew is Joshua. But that's not a Holy Spirit thing. I'm just bringing it up because I thought it was a cool coincidence. I, I, I can't make any hay with that or anything. But that's what we need. We need a Joshua Harrison to, to hit a home run. That's it. What happens? Like, you win. Right? You have failed every single time, but at the end of the game, you walk off a winner because one of the guys on your team actually succeeded. That's your hope. That's your hope is that the guy, that, that the captain, captain of your team actually can win the game. That you can turn the ball over 100 times. You know, you're, you, you're going to get zero rebounds. You're not going to get any assists. You're the guy that you're guarding is going to score a bunch of points. But you know what? You are going to win the game because the greatest basketball player in the history of the universe is on your team, and it's guaranteed that you're going to win. 
because you are on the same team as the guy who always wins. That's what this text means. You're not going to win, but you are going to win because he's going to win. Let me wrap this up with one quick verse from Hebrews chapter 4, which Hebrews 4 actually is interesting, interestingly enough, talking about this second story I told you that references that this text references, the story of Israel being tempted in the wilderness. And um, the writer of Hebrews says, look, we, we are going to win. We are not going to cave into this temptation like they did in the wilderness, not because we're holy, but because we have a great high priest on our side who knows how to beat temptation. Here's what he says at the end of chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. All the temptations that you've ever experienced, Jesus himself has experienced those, whether in the wilderness or later in his life. He's experienced all those temptations, yet without sin. He hit the home run at the end of the game to win the game. He is Joshua Harrison. So, pay out, and then we'll be done. What do we do then? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive two things here. Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy. We need forgiveness for the times that we failed. We need Josh Harrison not to come back to the bench after walking it off and say to us, I had to save you all loser self again. Y'all owe me. Jesus doesn't do that. He gives us mercy. He's happy to win the game for us. He's happy to forgive our sins. He's happy to play on the same team with a bunch of losers. And that's what you are. You're on his team. So baptism does, right? Baptism puts you on his team so that when he wins, we're on mission. That we can be, through the power of Jesus, we can be the people. This is what the second thing is here. We don't just need mercy. We need to find grace to help in time of need. What's the time of need? The time of need is every single stinking second of our lives. Every moment that we are on mission. Wherever that is. At your job, in your relationships, in your community, with the world, the environment, whatever it is that God's put you on. He has put you in there. And he gives you the grace to help in time of need because he can beat temptation. And he, through us, St. James Lutheran Church, us as individuals, he can actually accomplish the mission that Adam and Eve were called to do, but didn't. That Israel was called to do, but didn't. That Jesus was called to do, but did. Let's stand and pray and we'll have communion. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for being a great and mighty God and for loving us. We thank you. We prayed to you earlier this morning when we were uh, praying the Psalms together. Uh, we praised and thanked you for being a refuge uh, for us. God, we're so glad that we're not a refuge for you. We're so glad that you're not the kind of God that we have to protect, that you're not the kind of God that we have to uh, carry on our shoulders in the flood or protect from the fire. That we're not the, we're not the, you're not the kind of God that needs servants and soldiers to defend you. You're the kind of God who is a refuge for us. You're the kind of God who protects and defends us. And we admit that we've tried to do uh, your mission on our own. In fact, we've tried to do our own mission uh, frequently, not your mission. We pray that you would put us back on your mission. Allow us to have the strength, your refuge strength, to face the temptations that you've given us as a part of our mission, not as a sign of failure, but as a sign that we are on your mission. Lord, in your mercy. God, I thank you so much for uh, this church and these people. I was just thinking this week about, uh, fingers crossed, but it seems like we're getting closer and closer to times when we can spend more time face-to-face -face with each other. I know we're not there yet. God, bring us to that moment. But whether it's the women's Bible study here yesterday or the men's Bible study or the youth group on Tuesday night or the Ash Wednesday service, to be able to spend more and more time uh, with my sisters and brothers is being, being a really sweet thing. I pray that you would bring more and more of that uh, into our lives. For those who can't be together with us now, God, that you would keep them safe, that you would bring them to a spot where they will be safe enough to come and meet with us as well. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray for everybody who is still struggling with uh, sickness and disease and uh, so many names and so many of them that I feel like I mention every week. Uh, Norval, uh, Joyce, people who are struggling uh, badly right now with physical stuff. There are people in here who are struggling with psychological and spiritual stuff like crazy. There are people in here who are struggling with relational stuff, people who are struggling with feelings of ineptitude, people who feel like they're lost at sea, like they don't have a purpose. God, for all of us who are experiencing different levels of this, great or small, I pray that you would bring the comfort of your son's resurrection, that you would give us hope and meaning and courage 
in physical health, in relational health, in spiritual health, in psychological health, in your son's resurrection. Lord, in your mercy. God, we can only pray these things as we always pray this way. We can only pray these things because the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, is powerful enough to forgive our sins, is powerful enough to put us on mission, is powerful enough to bring us into your throne room so that we can be called your sons and daughters. And so we pray this by the power of his blood and in his name. Amen. Now let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Is rain.